One of the most famous, one of the most significant missionaries of the 19th century was a man by the name of Hudson Taylor. You probably heard that name before. Hudson Taylor was the founder of the China Inland Mission. He spent 51 years of his life in that country sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, tilling the soil for what would later develop to an explosive harvest. A mass movement of evangelism and church planting that continues to the present day so that today there are millions of Chinese believers, many thousands of Chinese missionaries being sent out into all of the world. There are many different reasons why Hudson Taylor was such a remarkable man, remarkable missionary, but one of the things that set him apart from other missionaries of his day was his willingness to learn the Chinese culture and to become like the Chinese people in order to gain a hearing for the gospel and to win them to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Hudson Taylor lived and ministered during the height of British colonialism, and many Western missionaries of that historical period tended to confuse British culture with genuine gospel transformation. To become a Christian was, in a sense, to adopt the British way of life in addition to bowing the knee to Christ and submitting to Him as Lord. There was often an implicit assumption among missionaries that Western culture was the same thing as Christian culture. Well, Taylor lived and ministered during this historical and political climate, but unlike many of his fellow missionaries, he recognized the gospel message needs to be contextualized. Cultural barriers to the gospel need to be taken out of the way. And so when Taylor arrived in the city of Shanghai for his second major missionary stint, he and his associates came dressed like the Chinese people in order to win the Chinese people to Christ. It was a move on Taylor's part that drew intense criticism from many Westerners who thought that it was better to preserve and to promote the English way of life. Mr. Taylor, however, was convinced that the gospel would only take root on Chinese soil if Western missionaries were willing to embrace the culture of the people that they were seeking to reach. He rooted his missionary practice in the biblical text we're about to study this morning, and he said the following in defense of his contextualized strategy. Let us, in everything not sinful, become like the Chinese, that by all means we may save some. If you have your Bible this morning, I want to ask you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9, listen carefully as I read this morning verses 19 to 27. I remind you, this is the inspired and inerrant Word God. Verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a slave to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessing. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. 
Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Thanks be to God for His Word this morning. Well, for the past few Sundays, we've been in this section of 1 Corinthians. It's dealing with the subject of Christian liberty. section of Scripture that is helping us to understand how we can exercise our liberty in a way that honors the Lord to know when we should voluntarily limit our liberty for the sake of others around us. This whole discussion about Christian liberty is Paul's written response to a conflict that was happening within the Corinthian church regarding food that had been offered to idols. Some of the Christians in the church thought they could eat the food, while others felt they didn't have the liberty to eat it. And Paul is now writing to these divided believers to help them work through their conflict in a way that would preserve the unity of the body, and at the same time uphold the fundamental principles of the gospel. And so as we've discovered, chapters 8 to 10 of this epistle are to be read and are to be interpreted as one continuous block of teaching from the Apostle Paul, instruction that is still very relevant and very applicable to our culture and to our situation today. Back in chapter 8, you may recall, Paul states his main principle about the exercise of Christian liberty, namely that our love for one another as Christians takes priority over the exercise of our personal rights and freedoms. Or to say that another way, the greatest virtue of the Christian faith is not the liberty to do as we please, but rather it is our love for one another. Although we human beings naturally like to keep things simple, we like to see everything as either a black issue or a white issue with no middle ground, the Bible makes it plain that on some issues there are indeed shades of gray where opinions will differ, where the Bible does not give us definitive instruction, and where genuine Bible-believing Christians will disagree. And when it comes to these disputable matters, what may be a sinful action for one Christian may not be a sinful matter action for someone else. Because as Paul says in Romans 14, whatever is not of faith is sin. And so here in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul establishes the principle that when opinions differ on disputable matters, the Christian with the stronger conscience is to voluntarily lay aside his liberty for the sake of the brother or sister with a weaker conscience. He is to defer to the brother or sister who may be provoked to do something they did not feel in their heart of hearts was right before the Lord. And so, friends, if the exercise of our liberty will cause a weaker brother to violate his conscience and fall into sin, Paul tells us here, we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves; we have actually sinned against the Lord. 1 Corinthians 8 establishes this principle of love over liberty. And as we follow Paul's argument into chapter 9, we see the apostle illustrates the principle from his own life and ministry. Although Paul had the right to receive financial compensation from the Corinthian church, we saw last time that he voluntarily laid aside that right for the sake of his mission. In the context of ancient Corinth and ancient Greece, Paul knew that an exchange of money could be misunderstood by those outside of the church. He knew that exchange of money could be used as a tool of manipulation by those inside the church. 
And so in this particular circumstance, Paul chose to give up his rights to provide for himself in a different way. This is how Paul's argument has unfolded so far in the text. He stated the principle in chapter 8. He has illustrated the principle in the first half of chapter 9. And now this morning, as we come to the concluding verses of this inspired chapter, Paul is going to give us a glimpse into his motives, his methods for ministry. In doing this, Paul is setting for us an enduring example to follow in our own day, in our own culture. Now last time, we emphasized that Paul's identity as a slave of Jesus Christ was the reason he was able to give up these liberties and to lay down his rights, following the example of his master, Jesus Christ, who did not come into this world to be served, but to serve. At a fundamental level, the Apostle Paul viewed himself as a slave of Christ, and because of that, he was willing to self-sacrificially serve others around him by putting their spiritual well-being before his own preferences and his own desires. That's why he says here in verse 19, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all, that I might win more of them. Up to this point in the narrative, Paul has been speaking about his willingness to relinquish rights for the good of his Christian brethren. But now we discover that Paul feels the same way about those men and women outside of the church who have not yet come into a saving relationship with Christ. Paul was willing to lay aside his liberties and rights for the sake of his fellow Christians, but he's also willing to lay them down if it will help him gain a hearing for the gospel among the non-Christian men and women that he's seeking to reach. And so we read here in verses 20 to 23. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside of the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. These familiar, these well-known verses give us a glimpse, I think, into the missionary mind and the missionary heart of the Apostle Paul. The driving motivation in Paul's life from the moment of his conversion was this burning desire to see the Lord Jesus glorified through the proclamation of His truth, through the salvation of men and women who are once hostile to Jesus Christ just as Paul was once hostile to Christ. Friends, Paul understood that God had saved him for a reason and for a purpose. Not simply just to sit back and enjoy the blessings of salvation, but also to share the wonderful news of grace with lost men and women who desperately needed to hear it. Paul was a man on a mission. He was, as the older generation of evangelicals like to say, a soul winner. And this burning desire to win men and women to saving faith in Christ helped to shape all of Paul's decisions regarding the exercise of his personal rights and personal liberties. If by exercising his liberty, Paul could push through a cultural barrier that would gain the gospel a hearing, he was willing to do it. And if by restraining his liberty, he could overcome cultural barriers to the gospel, that's what he was willing to do. 
Understand here, friends, when it came to the gospel message itself, Paul was not willing to budge or to move even one centimeter off the truth. But when it came to the non-essentials relating to culture and to preference and to opinion, Paul was unbelievably flexible in his approach to mission and ministry. John Newton said it well when he wrote that Paul was a reed in non-essentials, but an iron pillar in essentials. I like that. A reed in non-essentials, an iron pillar in essentials. Paul was willing to flex when it came to the cultural packaging of the Gospel, but Paul was unwilling to budge when it came to the content of the message itself. Here in these verses, we get to listen to Paul's missionary heartbeat. But in addition to that, we also get to learn about Paul's missionary strategy. And we see that this strategy differed depending on which group of non-believers he was seeking to reach. When Paul was seeking to share the good news of the Gospel with Jewish people, as he often did on his missionary journeys, we learn here in verse 20, he was willing to become as a Jew in order to win them to Christ. You know, as a Christian believer, I've probably read these verses dozens of times, but this week, as I was reading and studying them once again, I was struck by something obvious that I've never noticed before, or at least that I've never thought of before. Isn't it interesting? The Apostle Paul, who was a Jewish man by birth, who was by his own description a Hebrew of Hebrews, can say in verse 20, he was willing to become as a Jew in order to win Jews to Christ. What a strange thing for Paul to say when you stop and think about it. Because after all, how does a Jewish man like Paul become as a Jew? As I thought about that question this week in my study, it struck me in a fresh way. Paul's fundamental identity did not revolve around his ethnicity or around his country of origin. Rather, it revolved around his new birth. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Although Saul, the religious Pharisee, once rooted his identity in his national origins and his ethnicity and took great pride in those things, Paul the Apostle rooted his identity in Christ Jesus. He was determined to boast in nothing except the cross of Christ. When it came to his identity, Paul was a Christian first. He was a son of Abraham by faith. No longer was it Saul, the Hebrew of Hebrews. No longer was was it Saul, the Pharisee. Now it is Paul, the Christian. Now it is Paul, the slave of Christ. In that moment when Paul encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus and was suddenly regenerated by the Spirit, he was given a liberty. He was given a freedom that he had never known before. And Paul, the Christian apostle, came to realize Jesus had set him free from all the ceremonial laws, all of the legal restrictions, all of the man-made traditions he once embraced. He was brought to see all of these things were types and shadows that pointed forward in time to Jesus Christ who came as the fulfillment of the law. There was a time when Paul kept strictly kosher in his diet, but after coming to know Jesus, he discovered he had the liberty to eat and to drink what he once found unclean and repulsive. At one time, Paul would never have dared darken the door of an unclean Gentile, but now God commissioned him to go as a missionary to rub shoulders with the Gentiles day in and day out. 
Paul's identity underwent a seismic shift when he came to know the Lord. And over time, he discovered the full extent of his Christian liberty, something that I am certain was a very painful and very difficult process for him to go through, just as it was for Peter and for the other disciples. But now Paul, the Christian believer, is free. Paul, the Christian believer, has a new identity that's firmly rooted in the gospel of grace. So much so that in verse 20, he can speak in this unusual way. A Jewish man by ethnicity who must now choose to become as a Jew in order to introduce other Jews to the long-awaited Messiah and King. Now friends, we need to be very careful not to misunderstand what Paul is saying here in verse 20 to conclude that he was willing to revert back to Judaism in order to win the Jewish people. As a Christian believer, Paul understood any religious system that promotes good works and human merit as a means of salvation is a false religion. Read the book of Galatians. Read the book of Romans, the book of Philippians. You will quickly discover what Paul thought about professing Christians who tried to add law-keeping and human merit to the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so, friends, it is unthinkable that Paul is expressing here a willingness to revert back to a legalistic religion in order to win legalists to Christ. In fact, that is the reason why he adds the parenthetical comment at the end of verse 20. He does not want us to misunderstand what he's already affirmed in the first half of the verse. To the Jews, to those under the law, Paul is willing to become as one under the law, although the parenthesis clarifies he himself is no longer under the law. Let's not miss the point here. By no means... Under no circumstance is Paul willing to compromise the message of grace by adding works and law-keeping as a requirement for salvation. Rather, what he is saying in verse 20 is that he is willing to adapt himself to the Jewish way of life if it will remove unnecessary barriers to the Gospel. Although Paul fully realizes eating kosher, getting circumcised, undergoing purifications will not commend him to a holy God or add one iota to the finished work of Jesus Christ, he also realizes these external things are deeply entrenched in the Jewish culture and worldview. And so at certain points in his ministry, we see that Paul was willing to accommodate to Jewish culture in order to remove unnecessary offense and to win a hearing for Christ among his own kinsmen according to the flesh. That's why in Acts 16, Paul has Timothy circumcised before bringing him onto the mission field and marching him into the synagogue. That's why in Acts 21, Paul participates in a Jewish purification ritual at the temple. Paul's action in these circumstances had nothing to do with salvation. They had everything to do with his missionary strategy. And that's really the point of the text in front of us today. In a Jewish context and culture, Paul was willing to lay aside his Christian liberty and adapt his lifestyle to the Jewish way of life. And it's precisely what Hudson Taylor was willing to do among the Chinese people by laying aside his British clothing and British way of life and adopting the Chinese way of life. You see, friends, Hudson Taylor and the Apostle Paul both understood the difference between the gospel message and between the culture into which they were speaking. 
The gospel message was not up for debate, but when it came to the culture around him, Paul was remarkably flexible and adaptable. To those under the law, he was willing to become as one under the law in order to reach those under the law. But Paul's flexibility worked the other direction, as we see in the very next verse, verse 21. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. In verse 20, Paul's speaking about his missionary activity among the Jewish people. In verse 21, he's speaking about his missionary activity among Gentiles. And unlike the Judaizers who wanted to force the Gentiles to embrace Jewish customs as a prerequisite for salvation, Paul the Apostle insisted on their liberty in Christ. He was willing to go to the mat for it because he understood the integrity of the gospel was on the line. A few moments ago, I mentioned how Paul was willing to have Timothy circumcised before he brought him into the Jewish synagogue. But if you look in the book of Galatians in chapter 2, we read of a different occasion and different circumstances when Paul absolutely refused to give in to the demands of a group of Jewish legalists who wanted Titus to get circumcised. If circumcision was understood as a cultural preference, Paul viewed it as something that was indifferent, as something that was neither here nor there. But if, on the other hand, circumcision was understood as a requirement for salvation, this man was not going to budge an inch because he knew what was at stake. Now, as you can probably imagine, some people have looked at Paul's teaching here in these verses, have concluded that Paul was little more than a two-faced hypocrite who acted one way around these people and another way around those people over there, but nothing can be further from the truth. Unlike Peter, who once gave in to the temptation to keep up appearances around the Jewish legalists, Paul couldn't care less what people thought of him. Paul was not trying to save face. Paul was not trying to impress anyone. And you know how we know that's true? Because of what he tells us in verse 23. I do it all for the sake of the Gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. The only thing that motivated Paul to lay aside his personal preferences to accommodate himself to the Gentiles and to the Jews was his desire to see these people brought into a new family called the New Testament church where ethnicity takes a back seat to our identity as sons and daughters of the living God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I wonder this morning as we reflect on these few verses from God's holy word, whether we see something of Paul's motivation and method in our own hearts, in our own lives, in our own church. I wonder this morning, do we see the exercise of liberty as a means to live comfortable and self-satisfied lives? Or do we view our liberty as a means to gain a greater hearing for the gospel of God's grace and to overcome unnecessary barriers in the work of evangelism. When we are interacting with our non-believing friends and neighbors and relatives, are we being intentional on taking those unnecessary barriers out of the way? Or are we unwittingly putting barriers and putting stumbling blocks in their path? 
Just as it was important for Paul to understand the difference between the gospel and culture in his first century context, just as it was important for Hudson Taylor to remember that difference in his 19th century context, so it is important for you and me to understand the difference between gospel and culture in our 21st century context. The gospel of Jesus Christ, friends, is not about the clothing we wear into church on Sunday morning. It is not about whether we are sitting on pews or on chairs when we gather together for worship. It is not about the music style that we've come to prefer, whether it's traditional or contemporary. It is not about the Bible version that we've come to to use, whether it's the Old English or the Modern English. You know, when I was a younger Christian in my teenage years, I had a very difficult time making the distinction between the church culture I'd come to know so well and the Christian gospel I'd come to cherish and to believe. In my teenage years, there was a very real confusion in my mind between gospel and culture. And those two things got all mixed up. They got all jumbled together. But as I grew in Christ, as I matured in Christ, the Lord brought me to a greater understanding of my liberty in Christ. And during my eight years as a cross-cultural missionary in Montreal, He helped me to understand that the unchanging message of the Gospel of grace must be translated into culture so that the non-believers we are seeking to reach will understand what we're saying to them. So we're not inadvertently seeking our own comfort When God is actually calling us to step out of our comfort zone. To reach a lost world that is on its way to hell. And so friends, we must ask ourselves in response to a text like this, what's more important to us? Is it more important that we remain safe and comfortable within the walls of our church building? Or is it more important that we get our hands a little dirty in order to reach lost people for Jesus Christ? Now, what I've just said to you by way of application needs to be qualified to avoid misunderstanding, just as Paul needed to qualify his statements so that he would not be misunderstood. In verse 21, Paul says, To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law that I might win those outside the law. But you'll notice right in the middle of that verse, he once again qualifies the statement with another parenthesis. And inside the brackets it says, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Those words in brackets in the parenthesis are critically important because Paul is not saying here he is willing to become lawless and immoral in order to reach immoral and lawless people. Paul recognizes even though he is not saved by law keeping, he is still under the law in terms of its moral precepts. That's why Paul, what Paul means by that little phrase in the verse, the law of Christ. He's speaking there about all the moral precepts of the Ten Commandments that Jesus Himself reiterated for the benefit of His new covenant people, the church. And so friends, don't walk away from this text this morning thinking that Pastor John has given you carte blanche to become worldly in order to reach worldly people because that's not what I'm saying and it is certainly not what Paul is saying in this text. 
Every culture, without exception, including our culture, has good points which can be affirmed. And every culture, including our culture, has bad points which need to be critiqued and rejected. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, just because we are living now in a morally depraved, sexually perverse culture does not mean that we Western Christians have the liberty to violate the moral law of God or to whitewash sin because we think it will make us more relevant and more appealing to those outside the church who hate our Gospel, who hate our Christ, who hate the Scriptures upon which we take our stand. And I'm convinced, friends, this is one reason we see so much compromise, so much worldliness and ungodliness in the Western church. We love Paul's teaching in verse 21 just as long as we can forget the parenthesis, as long as we can ignore the fact we are bound as Christians to live according to God's moral law. It's a precious law. It is the law of Christ that reveals to us the righteous nature, the righteous will, the righteous standards of our righteous and holy God. In verses 19 to 23, Paul shares with us something of his missionary heart and strategy. But as we move along now to the concluding verses, Paul gives us insight into how he's able to maintain this passion for Christ and this laser sharp focus on the mission. Look with me at those final verses in 24 to 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. I discipline my body. I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. You know, in these final verses of the chapter, Paul is drawing on imagery that would have been very familiar to anyone who lived in the ancient city of Corinth, the image of a long-distance runner and the image of a boxer. Aside from being famous for prostitution and sexual immorality, the city of Corinth was also famous for holding a major sporting event called the Isthmian Games. It was a competition in those days that was second only to the Olympics. And every second year in the city of Corinth, Greek and Roman athletes would gather and would undergo 10 months of intense training and discipline, after which they would be eligible to enter the competition and to compete for the victor's crown. And as citizens of this city who had attended the games, perhaps even as some of the people in the church had competed in the games, they understood very well the hard work the discipline that was required if an athlete was to perform well in competition. I don't think that Paul's point here in this illustration is very hard to grasp. The Christian life is very much like a marathon race. But unlike the ancient Greek athletes who are competing against one another in order to win the prize, we Christian believers are running side by side and competing against the world, the flesh, the devil who want to knock us out of the race, who want to throw us off course. And Paul's first piece of advice to Christian men and women like us who are running the race of faith is that we would keep our eyes on the prize which he defines elsewhere as the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. In a world, in a culture that is full of many distractions, 
that is full of many pitfalls. We Christians must keep our eyes on the end goal or else we will veer off the course. We will pursue lesser things. Perhaps eventually we will quit running altogether. We will sit off on the sidelines wasting the precious time that the Lord has entrusted to us. Life is short. Eternity is long. And Paul's aim during his short time on planet earth was to keep his eyes fixed on the finish line to run in such a way that one day he would reach the goal line and hear the words, well done, good and faithful slave. Second thing that Paul teaches us as Christians in this sports illustration is that running well in the race, boxing well in the ring, requires discipline and hard work from the athlete. In the Isthmian Games, athletes who did not complete their full 10-month regiment of training and discipline were automatically disqualified from the competition. And in a similar manner, Paul suggests here, lazy Christians who are unwilling to discipline themselves and to bring their bodies and their passions under the Spirit's control will either perform poorly in the race of faith or else will be disqualified from the race altogether. It's interesting. Many of us, even in the church, are slaves to our bodies. Paul says, I made my body into a slave. I was not a slave to my body. We are not to be slaves to our bodies. Now perhaps, in this, in this particular context, disqualification in the race is a reference to a loss of reward in heaven. Or perhaps Paul is saying here something more severe. Perhaps Paul the Apostle is teaching us here it is possible for a person to think that he is truly saved when he is really lost. To demonstrate through his lack of concern for Christ and the kingdom, he was never truly born again to begin with. Paul's not teaching salvation by works in this text, but he is reminding us of a truth that we find elsewhere in the, in the inspired scripture, the truth that genuine Christian faith will persevere to the end. Genuine followers of the Lord Jesus Christ will keep on running to the finish line, even though it is true that at times we will all stumble. We will all fall. Sometimes we even take a few steps backwards. Like a committed and disciplined athlete, Paul kept his eyes fixed on the goal. He was willing to do whatever was necessary to win the prize, to run the race of faith well. Because after all, the prize that we Christians are running to win is not a flimsy little wreath. It is an imperishable crown. And so, brothers and sisters, in light of this truth, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race of faith that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen.